Hello and welcome to another episode of Brothers Creed Podcast, where we inspire fathers to teach values that become the blueprint for the next generation. We're the Thomas Brothers. I'm Ethan. And I'm Jared. And today we have a very interesting story for you about a man who was like most other Americans, uh, had a family, two kids, uh, had gone to college, was working as a lawyer, and all of that was upended uh, by a series of events uh, that... I won't spoil it, that uh, sent him actually to jail uh, for six years. He talks In this episode, we talk about a variety of things. We talk about how that impacted his family, how that impacted his life, what that time in prison was like, what are some of the lessons he learned from prison, and what are some of the things that we as fathers, that he as a father has learned as he's tried to repair those relationships with his kids as he's come out of prison, and what he saw, one of the things I liked we talk about was, or what he saw in those men that were in prison that maybe their parents were lacking in the way that they taught them. So it's a great episode, lots of wisdom that Wayne shares with us. So let's go ahead and dive in. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave close of day. You should be a monster, an absolute monster, and then you should learn how to control it. No retreat, no surrender. You can't conceive of what I'm capable of. There is no tomorrow. There is no tomorrow. What we do in life, that goes in eternity. All right. Welcome to the podcast. Today we have with us Wayne Boatwright. Thank you, Wayne, so much for joining us. My pleasure. So we, we um, have Wayne on the podcast. He's really got an amazing story that I think that we can all uh, learn from and grow from and uh, just some, some amazing life experiences that um, you know Wayne is willing to share with us to help us all uh, understand maybe more of the, the the meaning of life, you know, the important things in life, and how we can uh, maybe drive even just further appreciation for the things that we have. So let's uh, let's let's dive right in, Wayne. Would you introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us just a little bit about your your your, your backstory and and kind of what you're up to today. Sure, happy to. Um, I. Uh... I'm going to start, though, with um, a little euphemism I like to use, which is uh, life doesn't happen to us. Life happens for us. Uh, That's how we're going to learn things. That's how we're going to find out who we really are is life. Um, There's no doubt that I've had a number of phases in my life, and I cannot uh, say that they were all positive. Um, um, As a as a just a a snapshot. I'm happy to dig into it wherever you want. Yeah. I'm the classic uh, meritocracy story. So I was raised by a single mother and a half brother who's 13 months older than me. My mother didn't graduate from high school. I've lived in a trailer park. I've lived above a gas station. I've lived on government assistance and rent control housing as a kid. And I got my act together, um, went to school, ultimately went to Cornell Law School and got a a law degree and I focused on business law, not not what you see on TV, right? Yeah. Not a litigator and yeah. that stuff. And uh, uh, worked in LA for a few years at a, at a global law firm, then went to Korea for six years. 
Um, and then I came back to the U.S. to work with Accenture, uh, a dominant consulting firm. I was part of their in-house uh, legal team and had a global position with them, traveled around the world. Then I got, uh, I got bit by the startup bug. So I, I've focused, I, I live in San Francisco and worked in Silicon Valley and the, the opportunities that were there were so amazing, I couldn't stop myself. So I, I ended up consulting with startups for over a decade before my crime, which is the next phase of my life. And, yeah. and that crime was uh, gross negligent vehicular manslaughter. So I was driving while drunk so drunk i was going the wrong way on a freeway had a head-on collision and i took a life uh, with my crime so i have my my crime and my imprisonment i was sentenced to seven years eight months and because i was a model inmate i got out in six years three months uh, the earliest i could get out given my sentencing and i've been home for about four years so that that process of incarceration and what that was like and returning because I got to tell you, in many ways, I feel kind of like Odysseus, if you want to use uh, an old story, you know, I, nobody recognized me when I came home. Yeah, my community doesn't recognize me. Um, I don't participate in the old community I have, and I'm, I'm very much uh, have to start a new life. So those are all various phases in my life. And I'm happy to drop in wherever you'd like. Yeah, I, I think uh, one question that, that I had, and it's something you mentioned earlier, is that uh, this accident this accident didn't happen uh, until you were in well into your 40s i believe like you said you were yeah. almost 50 49 i believe you said is that right that's right so you you had had this very successful career it sounds like you've done lots of things uh you're married you had two kids at the time uh we still have two kids but uh they were young kids right uh at the time yeah they were correct? 5 and 7 at the time of yeah. my crime so you had all these things going for you, and, and, and from our conversation earlier, you you had this, uh, you were an alcoholic, uh, basically, and so you had this yeah. underlying addiction that just was uh, eating at you, and then this, is, this event really just turned your whole life upside down. Yeah, I, um, you know, to learn, we need to use analogies, and the analogy for me is I burnt down the psychic delusion house I was living in. And that house was built up by my culture, my education, my religion, my experiences. I had built this house that I lived in and was proud of, the persona that I showed everybody. Yeah. And um, I destroyed that as thoroughly as I can imagine a psychic delusion house being destroyed, um, both with my crime, uh, because, yeah, I was um, relatively successful as an attorney. Um, and, and I actually hadn't had my first drink till I was 33. Uh, but by the time I was 49, um, I was much deeper into alcoholism than I realized until much later mm -hmm. as I did my recovery process. And, but yeah, I was definitely um, a functional alcoholic, right? I was going to, I was going to ask that question. I was going to say, uh, did, did those around you um, notice as well that there was an issue or your, your, your closest loved ones, or maybe those you worked with, or was it kind of a, almost a double life type type situation? Um, I, I'm sure they noticed it more than I realized at the time and more than they're willing to convey, uh, you know, a decade later right now. Um, so there were times that I would get visibly, 
intoxicated in public. Not very often. Um, but I, you know, I was drinking at home, but I hid that drinking. I never once poured myself, you know, poured some vodka into some orange juice in front of my family, but I sure was drinking it yeah. in front of them. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if they knew it or not. They never said they did. Um, but it, I, I think those are the signs for those of us who weren't raised in a family of drinkers. We didn't, I didn't appreciate it. Yeah. But when you're drinking alone, that's a sure indication that you've got a problem as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And if you're drinking daily, it's worse than a problem. Yeah. And I was doing both. Wow. So you, you had this bad accident, uh, and you, you end up sentenced to prison. I feel like, I actually, there's actually a movie that is about this almost exact scenario. I don't know if you've ever. I think really? the movie's called uh, Shot Caller. Uh, anyway, it's about a lawyer. It's about a very successful businessman, family guy. He gets a, he was drunk driving. He gets in an accident, and then he ends up in prison. And by the end of the movie, he becomes this hardened criminal, and he, you know because that's the only way that he could survive in prison. So I guess obviously that's Hollywood. But what was it like going from a life of you know? working in San Francisco and being a family man to to then being in prison. Like that's a pretty stark reality. And I also have one question is uh, where did you, what prison did you go to? Yeah. Um, well, it, it's a much starker contrast than I think you would believe. And a shot caller is actually a real term. <laughs> um, each of the major, major races, whether they be gang affiliated or not has a shot caller that is supposed to help keep the peace between their race and the other races. This is a California thing. Other mm -hmm. prisons are much more integrated, believe it or not. But California has very strict um, delineations. Uh, I was in San Quentin, which is a very famous prison. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's where Death Row is at oh. um, in uh, in San Francisco, or, you know, in the Bay Area. It's that's a very Marin dangerous. County. That's a very dangerous prison. It's full of murderers, um, to be honest. Uh, you, you have four levels of, uh, of incarceration. You have one, two, three, and four, four is the strictest. And there are other prisons that are only, you know, level four yards. San Quentin has death row, a level and a level two yard. And, and the level two means that these guys have been in prison so long and they haven't had, uh, violations that they've been able to reduce their number of points so that they could be on a level two yard. So it was a level two yard, but virtually everybody there was, had taken a life or multiple lives in many ways. And I'm talking with baseball bats, with guns, with knives, with drugs. What, um, what level where did you fit in that, that group? Were you um, in that level with those? I, because I had taken a life, I was considered a violent criminal under California law. Um, so I was put into a level two, which is called a hard 19, which is you can't go below level two if you've taken a life. That's the best you can be. Um, being a lawyer, I had to challenge that a bit. They were trying to keep me on what's called closed custody. And when I did my reception process, I said, look, I, I took a life, but I'm not violent. So you can't keep me on closed close custody, which restricts your hours and movements and everything. I wanted to have a little more freedom. But I was on what's called the main yard. Um, when you talk about uh, your movie shot caller, most of the guys at my cultural level would not be on the main yard. Uh, they get into a, a form of protective custody. 
and they're separated from uh, most of the inmates. Uh, close to 30% of the California prison population is in that segregated group, hmm. which has much more limited options. I, I'm a man. I was going to stay in the main yard. I wasn't going to um, be a wuss and, and claim I, my life had been threatened and that I needed to go into some sort of special safety. Yeah. And that gave me much more freedom to be on the main yard. But yeah, I was on the main yard. I saw guys stabbed and, and, you know, beat up and gang violence and all that stuff that you would, you would see in the movies, but not that often. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, most of that is, uh, by necessity kept as quiet as possible because you don't want the guards to know about it. They're called COs, correctional officers. You don't want your CO to find out what's going on. And so you, you keep that stuff on the lowdown, right? As much as you can. And that includes people who get hurt. They don't yeah. want to admit that they've been hurt either. Yeah. And, and you know, you had said you ended up serving just over six years. I mean, six years not being in prison will age anybody, but I'm sure six years in prison is, is, is more like 12 or, <laughs> or, or 18. Um, but what what yeah. type of – and thank you for sharing that. Uh, I, I appreciate that insight. Um, what, what kind of opportunities were there in prison for you to um, – kind of face this this addiction that you had uh going in beforehand i know you you know you suffered with with alcoholism i mean i I don't know all the ins and outs but maybe people make alcohol in prison or not or whatever but uh what 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 was it that allowed you to kind of get over that um well and first of all i did not have to get over that uh drugs and alcohol are readily available in the california prison system uh, evidenced by the fact that people are ODing on fentanyl inside the system, uh, even as we speak. Um, um, in my, so you have three levels. For us, who um, they say that virtually everybody knows somebody in prison. I didn't know anybody who had ever gone to prison before I committed my crime. I'm not sure about you guys, but I think very few of us in the established mainstream culture actually have any idea of what really goes on. Um, so you have three levels of prison. You first go to county jail, then you go to reception where they classify you as to what prison you'll go to. And then you go to the prison you'll end up at. So I was in Kings County, county jail, Mm -hmm. which had triple tiered bunks. All the cells were full. So on the main, in the shared area, there were triple tiered bunks. And then they had mattresses on the floor, on the ground and the rest of the floor. Cause they had so many guys in county. Wow. You wear slippers. You can't wear shoes in county jail. It, it is, you're just trying to survive county, right? Um, then you go to classification, which is in a, a mainstream prison, but you're classified, since you haven't been classified yet, you have all four levels of inmates, one through four. And because of that, you have a heck of a lot of violence in classification. The reception center, it's called. You have a heck of a lot of violence in the reception center as people are trying to establish their, their pecking order. So, uh, you know, a guy got stabbed and killed in my prison yard. My The, the celly next to me had a broken jaw from a fight he got in. Um, we had uh, gang members who were beating up one guy who wouldn't affiliate with them, and he got shot. They got shot by what's called a, a block gun, which is like a... It's like a gigantic shotgun, but instead of shooting a shell, it, it shoots a like a hard a handball, very hard ball at you, and knocks you down. Wow! So I got guys. I saw guys shot with with those. 
Um, to the alcohol issue, in my cell, the first cell I was in in reception, underneath my mattress was what's called a kicker or a starter. And that's the, the yeast mix that they use to make pruno. So yes, you could get alcohol inside if you wanted. And there was, you know, even in, even in reception, you could do that. Uh, most of the time you're on lockdown in reception. So you don't get to get out. You, you don't leave your cell, let alone the building uh, for most of the time. And then after my time in reception, I went to San Quentin. Did you struggle? Which is at, where I had my main prison area. Did you, you know? struggle at all with alcoholism in prison, or no. how was that? You you were just done no. with it. Oh yeah, I I won't say it was the accident. Um, I won't say it was the. It's a crime and an accident, right? Yeah. It wasn't intentional. Yeah. Um, but it's a crime. Yeah. And. Trust me, you you take a look at yourself differently uh, when you realize you're the one that has taken somebody's life. Yeah. Um, uh, that gives you, it gave me not a desire to continue to escape from my life's challenges, but to learn how to face my life's challenges. However, that was a very solitary experience in county and in reception. Uh, it was only when I got to San Quentin that I was able to start doing the work of introspection and understanding that kind of led me to appreciate how I got to my uh, addiction and alcoholism and then was able to feel that I am free of it. And I think, you know, there's so much in here to talk about that I I don't think is fully appreciated. Um, many, um, you know, Matthew Perry recently died, right? He yeah. OD'd. He's, a, he's an actor, right? Yep, yep. If you, if you watch his story, he's the guy that is the classic addict. And what he tries to do is he tries to build walls around whatever is the trigger that has him drink or take drugs, right? And so he's hoping those walls will stop him from getting to that trigger and clicking it. And if you really want to get healed from an addiction, and that addiction could be anything, it could be porn, it could be food, it could be smoking, it could be alcohol or drugs, right? You have to find out why you're using that addiction as a coping mechanism to deal with a different underlying problem. And if you can't face that underlying problem, you'll never get over your addiction. You, you can might, build as many yeah. walls as you want. You're, you're a smart person, you'll find a way around it. How many years did he struggle with his addiction? You know, he still found a way to get around those those walls he built and he, he ended up losing his life because of it. Yeah. And I would contend that's because he never learned to face the underlying issue or trauma that he experienced that led him to use the coping mechanism of drugs and alcohol, as it had me. Um, but that's yeah. a really complex process. I gotta yeah. tell you guys, it's not, it's difficult to convey um, gaining that appreciation yeah, and then trying to develop an understanding of where you're at and then the tools you need to deal with it. Because in a, one way I like to characterize it is it's like a big blind spot. I didn't know I was an alcoholic. Yeah, I'm sure a lot more people did around me than I appreciated. They can see my blind spot. I can't. Right. Yeah. That's not just the blind spot of that coping mechanism. It's the blind spot of whatever was that underlying issue that had me use alcohol 
as a coping mechanism rather than facing that life challenge that I had. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I was going to ask you, one of the things you mentioned earlier was about this, this delusional house that you think you had built, you know, you said that you had built before you went to prison uh, about all the beliefs that you had and all these values. And you had mentioned to me before that when you went to prison, you kind of deconstructed all that and reconstructed the new who you are. Obviously, you had a lot of time to think, right? Can you tell us a little bit about the maybe the the toppling of all that that house and then the and the rebuilding of that and, and maybe what lessons you had learned or mm, thought about in sure. prison that helped you rebuild that? Um, uh, you spend a lot more time in prison um, in a state of hypervigilance uh, for survival. It doesn't give you a lot of free bandwidth to uh, get an education, uh, work on your own personal issues, for example. And I spent my first four months facing survival. You feel like you're on the savanna, and the savanna is full of predators and prey, and you're doing everything to make sure nobody thinks you're, you are prey. If you use your movie example, the way that the shot caller had to do that was he got a bunch of tattoos and toughened up. That's what people recommended for me, by the way. They told me to start taking testosterone and steroids and to shave my head and, and look tough. And I said, I'm, that's not who I am. That's not facing my issues, right? That's just hide, another way of hiding. So I wasn't going to do that. Um, so I, I think when I finally realized that I had destroyed everything was actually... Um, I had been at San Quentin for four months and my wife had wonderfully and to her eternal credit brought my kids to visit me, uh, even though they were now only six and eight, she still brought them into that toxic visiting center environment, which takes hours to go through to get through all the security levels to actually get to sit with somebody and sat with me and brought my kids to me. And she asked if she could come by herself. And I said, great, well, let's have an adult talk. Absolutely. And was totally blindsided when she told me she wanted a divorce. Um, and you know, like when a, you know, they call it the dead man bounce. You, you don't know you're dead when she tells it to you. Um, that your life is over as you've, as the hope that you had for a future, not just the, the challenges you faced in prison, disappeared. Um, that's when I realized that I had used a fire to destroy my delusion house. Um, and by the way, I, a lot of these concepts I talk about in much more depth in my writings. So you can find me on Substack or Medium. It's all free, even though those do have pay services. I don't charge anybody. I want them to, if they want to read it, I want them to have access to it. Yeah. So I have a number of ones titled The Fire, for example. Yeah. Um, I have another one titled The Circle, because the way I was able to learn to deal with this was through a group called Vogue, which just stands for a Victim um, Offender Education Group. And that's where a group of men get together who've committed murder, and they learn to face uh, the consequences of what they've done, not just to their victims, but to their community and to society in general by their actions, by their crimes, but also what were the traumas they experienced that had them develop the defense mechanisms of shutting off their emotions that allowed them to take a life. And I mean, one of these guys, you know, he killed somebody with a baseball bat, right? Um, 
for cutting him off on his motorcycle. And he felt the police hadn't imposed a tough enough penalty on this guy, so he was going to get retribution. And he used a baseball bat to do it. Wow. What would cause somebody to take that action, right? What would cause me to be so drunk that I would drive drunk? And I, I got to tell you, the underlying uh, persona, that delusion house, was the, the self-protection of pride, to be honest. You've all heard pride proceeded to fall. People don't understand what that means, I think. I had to develop a sense of pride. I had to be what I, my mantra, my creed used to be better, faster, stronger. I was going to do it on my own because I was raised by a single mother who was very disconnected from life. Her, her idea of a night was to sit down and read romance novels. You know, thank God I had a grandma who took me out to get my hair cut and to buy clothes or I would have been even worse off, right? My mom wasn't a parent. So I became a parent in a way at a very early age. And was lucky to have um, faith and a, and a church that helped guide me through those years. But I took on the mantra of better, faster, stronger, and this shield of pride to protect me from the fact that I was unwanted in many ways. Or I felt unwanted, right, as a young child. And young children don't realize that. Um, you know, we haven't talked about the kids yet, but I, yeah. you know, my daughter was, um, I'll give you an example of somebody else that I saw this go through. So it's my daughter. She was, um, you know, she was only five when I committed my crime and I was her dad. I'm the hero of her life, right? And then she was six, six when I went to prison. But it was years after that, that the defense mechanism she developed because dad is obviously a bad person, right? He, he committed yeah. a crime. He's in prison for having sex. Yeah. So her defense mechanism was not to trust men. Hmm. Um, she has a problem with her coaches. She has a problem with her teachers um, who are male. Now, she wouldn't say that. She's got a blind spot to it, I think. Yeah. But her defense mechanism was, my dad abandoned me, so I'm not going to get in a situation where somebody can abandon me again. Right? Yeah. That's the way I interpret her actions. And I've been working very hard to reestablish a level of trust with her since I've come home so that she can hopefully put down that defense mechanism of not trusting men. Uh, and I think she's made a lot of progress. Yeah. She's a senior in high school. She's got a boyfriend. She's doing great. Right. Um, yeah. But I still worry about that for her. Um, yeah. Um, and I know I'm getting far afield there. Sorry, guys. No, no, it's but, okay. But, but these are the things that, that you go through, right, as you, you burn down that psychodelusion house. For me, it was realizing that the hope of coming back to a family, to having that love story um, that survived this challenge as yeah. an example for others, disappeared, was, was burned there, away by my actions. Was there um, times of, I mean, I'm sure there was like times of despair, right, for, for, for you, um, that you felt, you know, hopeless or scared or how am I going to overcome this or, or, or whatever it might be. Was there kind of maybe timelines over the, the, the six years where, you know, you shared the, the first four months of trying to, you know, you felt like you were on the Savannah. At one point during during your your prison time, did you feel like, OK, I, I know what I'm doing. I'm here like I can do this right. It's it's it, it's way out there, but. 
I, I've got this. You know, was there was there different stages where you felt maybe more comfortable or or you felt like you were growing as a person? How did that that process look for you? Sure, sure. Um, I um, so when I rebuilt this psychic delusion house that I was living in, what I did was I did a lot of study, not just groups. And when I'm talking study, I call that ancient Greeks and dead Englishmen. And I'm not just talking about like at the you know, li- like at the library there, like studying yeah. like books. Yeah. Okay, exactly at the library. I'm talking pre-Socratic before Socrates books about those Greeks, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I went deep because I realized um, that I had an obligation to rebuild my psychic delusion house because the one thing that got me through prison um, was that I was going to come home to two children who I needed to be a good example for. And trust me, there were many times in that depths of despair that taking my own life was a serious consideration. And I didn't choose not to because of my faith in God. I didn't choose not to because of my soon my ex-wife uh, with any hopes of getting back with her, right? Um, I decided to because I knew that if I did that, that it would create an example for my kids that they could use opt out. I was scared to death that they would take their lives. I had a responsibility. And I think when you take a life, the power that that represents, and that's the right word for it. This immense, I had no idea I had that much power that I could take a life. I never imagined I could. But once I did, I recognized that I had to take responsibility for that power. If you read a lot of the, the psychological guys, they talk about the dark side, right? that dark persona. Well, that's what this represents in many ways, that power. You have to learn to face it. So I knew that I had to learn to face that, um, not just for myself, but so I could be a, a better father. The, the way I like to characterize it is you do introspection, then you do creative self-expression, which could be a job. It could be music, art, sports. It doesn't matter. Creative self-expression where you're interacting with your community. And then you do service where you help others along that path. So I think that that's kind of the realization that I've come through through life, that you're always focused on those elements, introspection, creative self-expression and service. Were you able to do those things in prison? Um, Yes. Uh, Luckily, um, just as Silicon Valley is a unique, uh, vibrant, creative environment in the world for new technology, uh, San Quentin represents the Silicon Valley of criminal justice reform in the United States. Uh, Many, many people volunteer their time and efforts. Many groups volunteer and come into San Quentin to provide opportunities. And it's voluntary on both sides, by the way. No inmate has to go to AA, for example, or drug treatment, uh, or nonviolent communications, or restorative justice, a number of different groups that I took when I was in prison. Those are ones that you you carve the time out to do yourself. And I, I did that. I realized that I needed help, to be honest, because that proud person who had to be better, faster, stronger, obviously couldn't do it on his own. I tried. And it was so hard that I decided to use the coping mechanism of alcohol. And yeah. I used that coping mechanism so much that I became an alcoholic, so much that I drove while I was drunk and I took a life. 
So I couldn't do it on my own anymore. I had to get help. And so I looked at these groups as one form, but I think much more of my, the insight I gained was through my own research. I, many guys would come to me and want to, these guys, they're just passing time, right? They just waste yeah. anything they can do to fill out time. And I'd say, look, I know you're bored, but I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm busy doing something. So, you know, go find somebody else. I, I try to give you that visual of prison of the Savannah. I think a better one would be uh, our modern fixation on all of these, these whore creatures, right? So prison had, had zombies, vampires, and werewolves. Okay. And the zombies were these guys who were still drugged out, who would come to any motion they saw. You couldn't show emotion in prison or they would come over to try to find out what was going on. The werewolves were the guys who looked totally normal. You could sit down and play a game of chess with, and then they would trigger and turn into a full on wacko, hmm. right? Just like a full moon hit them, right? Yeah. They're a werewolf, they turned into a werewolf. And the vampires were the most insidious. These were guys who wanted to be your friends so they could suck everything emotional out of you. So they could hear about your life and your challenges and troubles. But don't think they were trying to help you. They wanted to pull you down. Hmm. Those are the guys who want to offer you drugs. Use it, use it pain. against you in some way. Absolutely. Yeah. In any way they can. They're vampires. They want to suck the life out of you. Um, and those were the majority of guys inside. There were a lot of guys who were trying to do their work, but they were still a minority of the people, at least on the main yard that I was at. So you talked about how earlier, um, you know, these guys had su suggested that you get some tattoos and, and bulk up or what have you to, to be intimidating. Uh, other, so you said, that's not me. That's not how I'm going to be intimidating. Uh, obviously to survive on the Savannah, you had to do something. You had to show that were tough. You said earlier, you know, I was still in the main yard because I was a man. Uh, how did you, how, did you use your words to, uh, to present this an intimidating front or how, what did you do as opposed to getting those tattoos and, and taking testosterone to present yourself as a strong force that is not to be uh, messed with. Exactly. And, and I had that respect uh, from all the races, not just the white race um, in, in prison, which is a testament to, to being of value to others. And that's the characterization I would give for it. Many of the guys who have some form of wealth in prison, they become what I like to call is an, an ATM machine. So they'll have money sent into prison and they'll buy things and they'll buy loyalty from people. Right. But these people will line up in front of that ATM machine and want to get stuff all the time. And they tried it on me a number of times. I had a, I had a guy who would always ask me for a shot of coffee all the time, you know, and, I'm happy to give somebody a shot of coffee once a month. Everybody has a hard time, right? But he's asking yeah. all the time. Yeah. So how did I deal with that? I used humor. So in front of a group of people, I said, man, you know, you're like, you're like a nickel slot machine, man. I keep putting money in and putting money in and nothing comes back, you know? And he got the message and stopped asking me for shots. So I used humor. Um, but I wanted, I found the most effective way for me was to try to establish some sense of, of value to uh, the community that I dealt with. One of the best ways of doing that is to establish a barter system. So the barter system is everything in prison. <laughs> when I, when I, um, you leave prison on the last day, they wake you up like at 4.30 and you're out of the prison by like 5 a.m. So nobody else wakes up till like six. So it's very quiet 
when you leave a prison. And that's when you throw away all your stuff and you bring whatever few things you want to you want to bring home, right? Or that you have left. I had to use that quiet time to throw away about a thousand packets of lemon Kool-Aid. Um, that's uh, like a million yeah. dollars. <laughs> a, a thousand packets of lemon Kool-Aid. You not get- not a hundred. I had I had a bucket full of lemon Kool-Aid. You didn't okay? give it to your cellmate. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, you. Uh, so part of that system is if somebody wants something then I wanted to be a, somebody they'd be willing to trade with, but I was happy to trade at a discount. I wouldn't make it obvious to them. So if they wanted my cookie, I'd say, well, if you got lemon Kool-Aid packets, then sure. But if you don't know, so I would trade something out of my lunch for that. Um, if I, if somebody did something really special and I wanted to show my appreciation and say they wanted some chocolate. Um, you're allowed to get a quarterly package once every three months. You can order something. Oh, no, it's yeah. No, it's twice a year. I'm sorry. You only get it twice a year. You get a package. So um, on that time, somebody wanted chocolate or I wanted to give somebody chocolate. I wouldn't buy them Hershey's. Uh, I'd On that package that I would have delivered to me, I'd buy Nutella. Right. They've never had Nutella in their life. You want to get a loyal friend in prison? Have them try your Nutella for the first time, right? Yeah. Um, and and I also tutored guys. Um, another thing I did was I had a lot of uh, subscriptions to magazines. When friends wanted to put money on my books so I could buy stuff, I'd say, no, I'm going to take care of myself on my eight cents an hour job. Don't worry about me. Um, but I'd say, send me a subscription to Sports Illustrated, right? Or People Magazine or whatever. And so I would get these subscriptions and I would leave those magazines on my top bunk and tell guys they could come borrow them if they wanted them. So suddenly I became somebody of value. I had something that other guys wanted. Um, they could borrow a magazine. They could trade for lemonade packets. Um, uh, those were things that I did. And so I became a value to everybody. And that was appreciated and respected. Um, and it kept me safe. Did you uh, ever have, prison more than anything else? I would say. Did you ever have folks that tried to steal from you, or you know, just take advantage? Sure. How did you handle those situations? You just have to pretend like they're not doing it. So, um, the the number one condiment in prison is sriracha. You guys know what sriracha sauce is, right? Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's it's on everything. You put sriracha on. If you knew, you probably got an idea how bad prison food is. You can appreciate how important sriracha would be, right? Yeah. You can only get that in those packages that you can order, huh. right? So you yeah. don't, you can't get it very often. So I had gotten a bottle of Sriracha. Um, my first job in prison, I was an electrician. Um, and uh, one of the first pieces I, one of the first articles I wrote in prison, I titled it three ways to die in a day because we're not very good electricians in prison. I gotta tell you, <laughs> it's a dangerous thing, you know? Um, and another article I wrote was called Stripping for Money. <laughs> um, right. And what are you stripping for money for in prison? Well, if you have a job like that at the end of your shift, you have to strip naked and go through a metal detector because they don't want you taking anything out of the warehouse where you work. That wires you're not supposed or, to. Yeah. Like wires or tools or anything. Exactly. So it's a very strict process that you go through when you leave work. So I had put my Sriracha bottle down because I brought it for lunch. Right. And it was stripped out of my clothes. When I looked back, it was gone. How long does it take to take off your clothes, right? I mean, 
30 seconds, right? Yeah, yeah. So I knew who had taken it, right? And I knew where his locker was. So I just went to his locker. He was standing right there, opened it, pulled my Sriracha bottle out and just walked away. Didn't say anything to him. And he knew I caught him at it. So he didn't make a fuss about it. If I had tried to blame him, then his defense mechanism would have kicked off and we would have had a real problem. But I didn't have to do that. I knew who did it. So I just went to his locker, took it out and left. Yeah. And humor is another way, as I said, calling a guy nickel slot is an effective way in front of people. He can't get mad about that as an effective way of, of um, diffusing that situation and not becoming an ATM machine to people. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, I didn't have anything. Um, I would live on 15 to $20 a month. Other guys would get $200 a month hmm. that they would bring in. So you have, the, you have the package you can get, and then you have the canteen. You can go to the canteen once a month. And that's where they have about a 65% markup on normal stuff, but you can buy like top ramen or sriracha, a shampoo, yeah, deodorant, chocolate. I get a, I would get a pint of ice cream once a month. That would be my treat for myself. Right. That's the thing that I wanted. Yeah. Um, so I only had that kind of money. So people knew that there was nothing they could beg, borrow, steal from me because yeah. I didn't have anything. Yeah. All I had was a lot of books, mm -hmm. right? Most of these guys don't read. They, they use the books as a stop to keep their locker door open. Man. Right. <laughs> um, the average wow. reading level, I think, is eighth grade, at maybe lower in the California system. Um, they're, yeah, they're wow. not readers. Um, so that made it easier, too. Right. I didn't have much for them to take and I was willing to trade. So why would they go through the hassle of stealing from me? So one, one interesting question I have is you're talking about these other guys. I mean, you're an educated uh, man, I mean, you went to Cornell. You you obviously are, are very smart. A lot of these guys in prison are not. Uh, from a parenting perspective, it would be very interesting. I'm sure that you saw a lot of maybe their failings of their parents that that have stunted their growth over the lifetime. What are some of the common things that you noticed that were uh, evident in these guys' lives? Uh, that you think was was due to parental either actions or inactions? Oh, yeah. Um, this is the first time I'm going to say this publicly, but I've, I've been trying to get the courage to do it for a while. Yeah. But I, I think I'm going to title my book on that topic, It's Your Mama's Fault. Um, <laughs> really? Uh, because this really does all go back. All of it. Not genetic. Not the color of your skin. It's a parenting issue as far as I'm concerned. And I know a lot of studies show, no, no, it's the culture or the, you know, the parents don't make a big difference. Maybe, maybe that's true. And a culture is definitely part of it. You know, we have a culture of, of consumerism in America, for example. Yeah. So of course people are going to steal a lot if they can't buy it. Yeah. Right. That, that is a cultural issue, but most of these guys are emotionally stunted. You know, um, the first, so I look at developmental levels, right? Your first level is pain. So as a child, you do anything to avoid pain. Um, but when you get a level of reason and sophistication, you get to the level of trading, right? So how much pain are you willing to suffer to get something? Um, you know, I'll steal it only if I don't think I'll get caught, right? Yeah. An adult is based in principles or the, the forms concept of Plato, the idea of an ideal. I don't steal because it's the right thing not to steal. 
right? Yeah. And so many of these guys are either at the pain level or the trading level where everything is, is a negotiation and anything is, is at that level. And a lot of that has to do from coming of coming from a culture of scarcity. I call it the competitive culture versus the collaborative culture. So if you come from the competitive culture, for example, we had a, a common soap dispenser to wash your hands, right? You know, for, at the sink, at the bathroom. Yeah. Um, guys would get an empty, like one of those empty sriracha bottles after they finished their sriracha. And in the middle of the night, they'd go to that soap dispenser and they'd fill up their sriracha bottle because they didn't want to run out of soap, hmm. right? Because they come from a mindset of scarcity. Yeah. Now, the consequence of that is, is that the other 200 guys in the dorm aren't going to have soap. But this guy's going to have a bottle of it in his locker, right? That mindset of scarcity is systemic. And I think what drives a lot of this is actually um, the mindset of and that scarcity mindset and competitive mindset has you tear other people down rather than build them up. You're not collaborating. Um, when I was working, uh, my second job after the electrician was I worked at the furniture factory there. So we had a factory where we'd assemble furniture and I was the, the clerk that did all the ordering of everything to make sure we had the right number of parts to build the number of chairs we were going to have, right? Um, one guy got a what's called a double A number. So he was getting the highest salary possible in, in the factory. He was, he was getting like a dollar five an hour, by the way, is the highest salary uh -huh. possible. Um, within a week of him, of people knowing that he had that salary, he was in the hole. And he was in the hole because his tool cart was missing a screwdriver. He's responsible for that tool cart, right? So he's missing it until they find that tool, he's gonna go in the hole. And that's usually about a three month process because they never find it, right? He lost his job, had to go to the hole, got transferred to another prison. Wow. Because he was dumb enough to admit he had a double A number and the other guys are so competitive not collaborative, that they stole that screwdriver to get him in trouble. And I saw that happen all the time in a myriad of different ways. Um, uh, it happened to me. Um, one time uh, I was called into the office by the guards. By the way, I never, I, I kept my distance from the administration and custody. I was respectful of that. Hey, I'm an inmate. We're all going to do our own time. Let's do that. I actually got called into a lieutenant's office for an investigation where he said somebody had uh, dropped a kite, which is another way of saying informed on. A kite is a little note. You don't mm -hmm. want to be seen talking to the guards, so you drop them a note, right? Mm -hmm. So somebody had dropped a kite on me saying that I was a member of the Aryan Brotherhood, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so he said, he said, look, Boatwright, I've known you for years. You know, are, are you a member of the Aryan Brotherhood? He goes, I got to ask. And I said, I said, my kids are half Asian. You've seen them in visiting center. My ex-wife is a Korean American. What do you think? You know? And he goes, I know, I know. But that's the kind of competitive stuff that exists. They tear each other down. And he until they can reach your, a level of collaboration. Kool he wanted your lemonade cool or lemon Kool-Aid is what he wanted. <laughs> Eleven packets. They, they probably wanted my bunk because by then I had a lower bunk in a corner. So I didn't have guys all around me. I had a little more privacy. I was in a dorm of 200 men. 
Oh, wow. Open showers, open toilets. You have no privacy whatsoever. A half height wall around your, your bunk. Um, and the disadvantage of where I was at was I was under the safety light. So you'd have to put a sock over your eyes to try to sleep at night, right? So it was a little better lit. And also when a guy wanted to solve, when guys wanted to solve a dispute and didn't want the COs, didn't want the guards to know about it, they'd go to the wall. So they go to the back in the corner where the wall and the outside wall, there's this walkway. And that's where they go have their fight. Or that's where they go gamble. Or that's where they go do their drugs. Mm -hmm. Or that's where they would go to do their tattooing. Um, you know, because that's against the rules. A lot of these guys have have gotten hep C because they do tattooing from dirty needles, not from doing drugs. Yeah, right? yeah. So they, they get this illness. So anyway, yeah, there were disadvantages, but it could have been something as simple as that. Somebody wanted my bunk. Yeah, yeah. It's competitive. Interesting. Um, so I, I wanted to kind and of... And irrelevant to what I want to talk about, or you guys want to talk about, <laughs> no, right? No. Th yeah, this... that developmental level is so important, right? Because I practice that with my kids. Yeah. Um, you have to meet them where they are mm -hmm. if you want to be able to communicate with them. You can't ask them to come to where you are. You can't instruct them. That doesn't do anything. And kids learn from observation. And you can think they learn from what you say, but they don't. Yep. Because from the moment they open their eyes, they've been observing you. And they learned everything from you and from their mother, basically. Exactly. So they're learning through observation. So you have to meet them where they are. And the best way for you to do that is to observe back. Um, my, um, my son had a passion for baseball. Um, uh, and when I say a passion, he would, he would score the game at six years old. Hmm. Okay. Um, when he, in that year bef between my crime and when I went to prison, I was very severely hurt. So I, I spent 90 days in the hospital and other stuff. So it was a while before I could move around, but I was able to spend a summer going to baseball games with my son before I went to prison. And I'd take him to the games early. Um, and we watched batting practice, right? We had this shared experience. You have to have that shared experience alone as a father, not with anybody else. And I would recommend if you have four kids, you better have four separate experiences or you're not yeah. going to get the benefit. Totally agree. Um, yeah. And, and meet them where they are. And for my son, it was baseball. And so I became a passionate San Francisco Giants fan. I grew up in, a, in L.A. I had Dodger blue blood flowing <laughs> through my veins. Okay? Yeah. Not anymore. I'm all San Francisco Giants all yeah. the way. Um, and so I was able to meet him where he was by letting him be excited, telling me about baseball, both his own little league and the stuff he was doing as well as the Giants and their farm system. Um, with my daughter, it was a little different. She got fixated on those uh, Rick Reardon books, uh, Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief, which deal with all these ancient gods. Yeah. And he's probably written like 40 of them, right? So I knew she liked that. So I went to the prison library and I checked out these books. So yeah, I've read, I've read him when he went through the Greeks and the Romans and got to the Egyptians. I haven't done the Aztec gods yet, which is apparently another one of those series, right? Yeah. But I had to meet these kids where they were. And by reading the books that they were reading, I was able to use examples from those books that they knew about and that showed them without saying it. I didn't have to say I love them. Mm -hmm. I showed them I love them because I read the books that they read. I, I love the sports that they played. Um, those tools 
are the ones you need to use. And you only gain that by you being observant as to what your children like and where they're at and what they're developmentally able to understand. I love Don't that. take them to a baseball game when they're two. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Finding that, that common ground and, and building off of that foundation. I really like Only that. way to do it. Meet them where they are. And then you can use examples from those things to, to educate on being honest and practice and discipline and all the other things you want to teach them. Um, that, that, that comes after you've done that. But you first have to show your bona fides, right? Yeah. You have to show you really know about it. And that's exactly what we talk about on the podcast. So it's not just about, you know, teaching your kids better, but it's about modeling that as fathers. So we talk about a lot, a variety of things, but just, you know, how can we be better as fathers is how can I be better myself? How can I improve who I am? Because then my kids will see that even the effort of me trying to improve myself is showing my kids that, uh, you know, that's something that's important to them. You know, just for example, for in my own life, uh, you know, this weekend I mentioned to you earlier that tomorrow I'm doing a, a jujitsu competition. It's something that I'm trying to challenge myself for. And I have my oldest son. He's very interested in Rubik's Cubes. He's bought six, seven different kinds of Rubik's Cubes. <laughs> and he could just do them. And he's a whiz. And I said, hey, well, have you ever considered doing a Rubik's Cube competition? And so we looked him up. And uh, there's actually one here in town. Uh, we, we missed the, the deadline for this year, but I was like, what if I take you to the competition so you can see what it's like, so you can see how other people are doing it? And he was like, oh, yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. So I think that's exactly what you're talking about is that like yeah. I'm, I'm trying to model that myself and, and me going out and doing things a little bit on the edge of my comfort zone. And I think by doing that, it will empower him to do the same. I love that. Uh, the Rubik's Cube is something we're going to come back to. It's called the, I call it the unified field um, because I, I used to work a lot with coders and I would try to get into their brains and how they work. But before I get into that, I, the other term I like to use going to the, to the performance or going to an event, um, I would, of course, uh, go to anything I could for my kids. Yeah. Right? I was able to, once I got off parole, I was able to go visit my son and I spent a week at his school where I could watch him pitch and play baseball because I never got to do that when I was inside. Yeah. Uh, and so I was able to go there and watch him. The term I like to use is be an enlightened witness. Um, the enlightened witness concept was developed by a psychologist named Alice Miller. Alice Miller is a Swiss psychologist. She also came up with the concept of the body keeps the score. Uh, ideal that's been used by some other people like Gabor Mate and a couple others that have written about this concept that even if you consciously can't remember some trauma, your body keeps the score. Yeah. And a lot of times you'll act out that trauma, hmm, but it's yeah. a mirror. So yeah. if violence occurred to you as a child, now that you're an adult, you will inflict violence on others, yeah. right? The yeah. body has kept the score. You don't realize it. You may think your mom is the most wonderful mom in the whole world, but I got to tell you in the groups I went to, I'd hear about them, you know, taking the electrical cord and beating these guys up. And by the way, telling them that they had to do that because the white man or the police would get them. So they, they, this ingrained prejudice is deep, hmm. deep, deep. And it, I don't know how you overcome it. Yeah. to be honest. And the other one you said um, is being an enlightened witness. The enlightened witness concept is one, if you can, you know, if you look up Alice Miller's book, she did one called the drama of the gifted child. It's a great book. She's got a bunch of them, but the idea of enlightened witness is um, 
again, not to be an instructor. It's to be the kid's front row at the concert, right? At the performance uh, in the school. When, when they get their, their semester grade reports to talk about them, about what each teacher wrote down or what you heard from the teachers, to let them know you know what's going on in their class. And if they need help, to offer that help that the teachers you know, shared with you in those reports. There's a myriad of different ways you can be an enlightened witness. Yeah. So it's not just a witness, right? You want to be an enlightened witness. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the other thing is to gain their trust. You probably saw the cat who just ran around <laughs> behind me. That's my daughter's cat. Oh, um, okay. Her name is Milky Way. Um, my daughter uh, goes to school back in Connecticut, and I'm in San Francisco, and you know her cat's out here. And one of the ways that I've tried to work to, to uh, regain the trust of my daughter is I offered to cat sit for her when she's away at school. And, and to show her that I'm doing a good job of it, I send her a, a snapshot of uh, Milky Way almost every day um, to show her how Milky Way's doing or a little video. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to take a video of her scratching the couch right now. That's not a good thing. <laughs> yeah. but, Common ground. But, common ground but exactly and trust yeah, yeah. you know I, I you know once you've lost by the way don't lose that trust um don't lose that trust it, it, in many ways it's impossible to get it back yeah um the the wound um doesn't have to stay an open wound uh it can scar over uh and you could lead a relatively normal life but there'll always be a scar if you lose that trust um, and I've lost that uh, with my daughter more, more so than my son. And I've had to work much harder with my daughter, um, who still won't let me into her life as much as my son does. Of course, it could be she's 17 years old and a girl. Don't get me wrong. And thank goodness their mom and I do very effective co-parenting. Unfortunately, for, for men of your generation and my generation, divorce is a much more common thing. And co-parenting is something people need to be effective at. Yep. And that means you never badmouth uh, the other spouse. Yeah. Never, no matter what they do. Um, you co-parent and you, you debrief with each other about what you've seen with the kids or what you've learned from the children in your one-on-one -on -one experiences with them. And I've been lucky. Um, and I'm eternally grateful to my ex, which is what I like to call her now. Not Twitter, not the <laughs> online thing. She's my ex. But she kept her promise of bringing the kids to visit me all six years I was in San Quentin. Um, and allowed me to have that personal interaction. One-on-one uh, -on -one sometimes. Yeah. And not always. There's, you know, we're not going to get into all of this, but, you know, there were 18 months where my son wouldn't visit me in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, because his friends found out his dad was, you know, was a felon mm -hmm. and they made fun of him about it yeah. and he didn't know how to deal with that. Yeah. Right. And the word he used is angry, but of course he wasn't angry. He was betrayed. Yeah. He was hurt. He doesn't know how to express those emotions. Right. And that's when you can use, he loved the Harry Potter books. And so that's when you can use those examples from the Harry Potter books of what is betrayal yeah. and what is frustration and what is loss yeah. um, to try to, to reach him. But I, I had to wait. I'd still talk to him on the phone, but I had to wait 18 months before he was willing to come back to prison. That was a hard, hard 18 months. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, well, uh, Wayne, this has been such a great conversation. We've talked about a lot of different topics, uh, and you've shared some great stories and some great wisdom as well. Uh, at, towards the latter part of our, our podcast, what we usually do is ask our, ask our guests to share a little bit about their personal creed. And I know you've got some, you sent us some preparatory materials uh, with some visuals that we'll put in our YouTube video and, and also on our Instagram account. But we'd love for you to walk us through some of that stuff that you sent us and, and, mm-hmm. and talk with us about that uh, personal creed that you have. You know, and, and you guys really gave me something to think about as we've been preparing, uh, you know, this, this time between scheduling and, and having this conversation. So I've been thinking about that. Um, and I do um, have a new mantra. It is no longer better, faster, stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not based in pride that I can do it on my own. Um, one of the ones that I like to say regularly and that I practice regularly is I refuse to know for certain what everybody else takes for granted. And that's much more significant than it sounds because as a member of this culture, you don't realize how many things you take for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to use a quick example of this. Are you guys right-handed or left-handed? Right-handed. right-handed. Both right-handed yep. then? Yep. Okay. Um, talk to somebody who's left-handed. And you'll realize that our architecture and our culture is designed for right-handed people. Golf clubs, scissors, can openers, doors, cars, computers, everything virtually is designed for the convenience of a right-handed person, but we don't notice it, right? It's just the way it is. Well, how else would you do a door? Trust me, there are ways to do doors to make it easier for left-handed people. There are ways to design cars, but they're only 10% of the population. So of course you don't do that. And it's everywhere. It's the way a notebook opens. It's the way a desk at school is designed is for right-handed people. Yep. Um, and I got to imagine that can get frustrating for a left-handed person. Sit next to them at a, at a dinner and see how that goes with a left-handed person <laughs> and how the, the setting is placed, yeah. right? Um, now, now, that's an example of things that we take for granted. And so I try not to take anything for granted. And unfortunately, it's shown me a heck of a lot of stuff that I think we're getting wrong in our culture. Um, for those arrogant... Um, white people who think there is not something known as institutional or systemic racism. Um, I would use this example and the black people are experiencing a different culture because they have a different subculture than we do. They have a different value system in many ways. Not all black people. You have four levels. You have the emergent, the transcendent, the mainstream and the street. There's really a, a much, a much more sophisticated division. Uh, in that cultural melu that exists. But all of them at some level have a similar experience, have that feeling of frustration that things weren't made for them. Um, And I think to learn things, you really have to treat it as something you feel, not something you think. And unfortunately, our culture has, because it's a literate culture, has taught us to read something and memorize it. And we pretend that's learning. That's a reminder. That's not learning. Learning is felt. You know when you know something, 
right? You're not yeah. just by rote trying to do division. You yeah. know when you can do division. And so you need to learn something. And I'm afraid most of the time we only have reminders instead of learning to know something. And so I can tell you all the examples. I can tell you that black inmates are sentenced on average to 10 to 20% longer sentences than white inmates with the same crime. And that's an example of systemic racism. Um, but telling you it, you won't feel it. Become a left-handed person and you'll understand that level of frustration that is analogous, a shadow of what other people go through when you're stopped by cops or when the, you know, the property custody person in the store is, is walking behind you to make sure you don't shoplift stuff and all those other things that happens as a regular basis to many African-Americans that I know. And you can appreciate the level of frustration they might experience. But if you're right-handed, you can't understand what it is for a left-handed person unless you can see it and feel it. And so hopefully you can use that example to explain to your kids why so many black people say that they experience racism when it doesn't appear to be obvious, where 25% of black males marry outside of their race, um, where you know we totally intermix in all of our cultural venues and in every way possible. We don't see that racism. We hear about it. We don't see it very often, right? But they could still feel it in a way. And I would contend that is a cultural issue, analogous to a, a culture designed by the majority. And there's a minority group that, that doesn't fit that culture exactly the same. Analogous to a, 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 a civilization designed for right-handed people. And if you're left-handed. That's really interesting. I never really heard that comparison before. And I, I mean, it, it, it makes sense, right? Just this level of uncomfortableness that is different and imperceptible by some and, and maybe felt more by others. I, I think it is. And I, and I, I really hope uh, it is new. I, it's one of my, I, that's part of my creative self-expression. Yeah. Right. I try to come up with ways of explaining what I saw those six years in prison um, because I didn't appreciate it before I went to prison. Um, you know, if you were to follow me on Facebook, you'd see I have at least 150 black friends. Um, I, I'm not going to ask you how many you have, but I'll, <laughs> I'll bet money it's less than that. And you guys live in the South, which has a lot more black people. California is only, I think California is 6%, 5.5% African-American. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's not a many out here, but I've still got over 150 friends because I've established that level of rapport and trust with that community. And I hope to convey that understanding to others. You know, I lived in Korea for six years and uh, I used to, the way I would express living in a different culture was I would, I would say, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. You guys are too young to have watched the movie Wizard of Oz. Probably. Uh, we've seen I mean, that movie. We, we're not that old. It was necessary. We're not that me. young. We're not that young. I should say. <laughs> Most kids probably, you know, they know those are great old movies. Those old musicals. Right. But, um, uh, you know, you have to recognize when you're in a different culture. And when I was in prison, I was in a different culture. But I'd already done two years in Argentina and six years in Korea and had a global position at Accenture. So I knew how to how to swim in new waters. I knew how to watch and learn from that culture and not not um, violate its taboos, which I didn't know or didn't understand or wasn't raised with. So they didn't come naturally to me. Right. Um, yeah. those things helped me to realize that, but that's another way I would recommend that if uh, I would, hopefully you will take your families overseas. They need to get out of America and yeah. see how other cultures. Yeah. Interact. In fact, and the uh, sooner you do that, the better. 
Yeah, in fact, uh, Ethan and I uh, both spent a significant amount of time out of country. Uh, I spent two years in central Mexico, learning language and everything. Ethan spent two years in uh, southern Chile, uh, mm. actually northern Chile, actually, uh, in the desert northern Chile. And so uh, we've had some great experiences in living amongst uh, folks who are of a totally different culture than ours. And uh, it was a great experience to do that. Uh, in many ways, I look back on the simplicity of the Mexican lifestyle when I was there, and I admire how, in many ways, there wasn't this like incessant need to consume or to have a bigger something. It was like, you know, sometimes I think back and it's like, man, all these people have is just like a stereo, uh, you know, a handful of movies, and you know, their family, and that's all they need. You know, that they just and they were happy, and they're yeah. happy, and uh, so I, I really kind of that kind of shocked me as, as a as a young man over in that uh, world. But it's, it's great to learn these lessons and being in different cultures and experiencing different things, like you're saying. You're putting yourselves in their, in their shoes. Uh, oftentimes you can do that. Sometimes you can't, like with a left-handed person. Uh, I guess you could try to open things, open doors with your left hand. In some ways you can put yourself in those positions, and in other ways you can't. And I think that it's, it's sometimes good to try new things. I think Ethan was telling me just the other day, he tries to brush his teeth with his left hand, right? Yeah. I went through this, this phase of trying to make myself uncomfortable, like exposure therapy. And, sure. uh, I would, uh, brush my teeth with my left hand cause I'm right-handed and it's just awkward. And then, you know, I try to eat, eat left-handed and everything. And, and I mean, you get better at it and, and you kind of, I don't know, overcome your own, your own weaknesses is kind of what my whole what my whole thing was, but, uh, but it's a way to see the world a little bit differently. Yeah. Well, and, so. and I, I, uh, invite you guys that when you meet a left-handed person to ask them, what are the two or three things they find most frustrating yeah. uh, about yeah. being left-handed? You'd I've probably got, be surprised. I've got, uh, um, at least one of my kids is left-handed. Me too. Yeah. My, uh, one of my kids is left-handed too. Maybe another one. We haven't, <laughs> we, we haven't figured it out yet. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's a, a great philosophy of of um, kind of seeing the world from other perspectives and knowing that 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 they exist and not just ignoring that. Yeah, exactly. So I, I kind of had one one last question here for you, and and maybe maybe it's kind of putting you on the spot, but um, wanted to kind of ask, given your experiences, right? Your mm-hmm. experiences before prison in prison and after prison um if you had to say just one thing to fathers right who are trying to do the best for their kids what would that advice be other than what we've talked about because we talked about some great stuff yeah um uh the the examples right, of meeting them where they are, being an enlightened witness are, are critical. Just being with them, right? But learning to accept them uh, in the way they are. And that doesn't mean that you let them get away with anything. I'm not saying that. But they need to feel that you understand them and that you accept them for who they are. Um, it's not that hard. I think everybody, all these guys who are selling books and seminars and all this stuff, uh, your kids will get 90% of the way there. If you're just an enlightened witness, you keep them safe, 
You show them you care, you know, yeah. you're a good example for them. Literally 90% of the way there, I believe. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's so many fathers feel such a sense of shame that they leave their children's lives completely. Or they're forced out because of the divorce terms in many cases, right? They need that witness. Yeah, yeah. And they need their fathers. It's not about uh, a mother's, they need a father. Mm-hmm. Because a father can also lay down the law and you have to do that. They need to know that there's a law and they should test their boundaries, but you should let them know there's a boundary. That's what a father's for, yeah. um, in my estimation. But they should test those boundaries. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, that's important. I, I've seen a lot of, a lot of the people at my level or our level of class, these mothers so overprotect their kids. They've never gotten a skin knee. They've never <laughs> gone camping. You know, they've never had a moment of want in their lives. All their play dates are scheduled for heaven's sakes. Yeah. Uh, I'm not talking about just abandonment. I'm also talking about this overprescribing. Oh yeah. They need to be, they need to be able to test their boundaries. Um, yeah. And you I should encourage that. that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Uh, time and acceptance. Yeah. Uh, I love it. Well, hey, uh, Wayne, this has been an excellent uh, review. I, I want to give the listeners, uh, we're going to put some links uh, to your uh, uh, in the in the show notes as well. But would you want to give a just a shout out of where folks can find you? Yeah, sure. Um, my name is pretty simple. I'm I've got it on LinkedIn. So Wayne Boatwright on LinkedIn, they can find me, or they could go to do a search in Substack or a search in Medium, um, and they'll find me. Or for that matter, a Google search will show a ton of my content that I've done. I've written for a number of different publications. What we haven't talked about was I never disclosed I was a lawyer in prison, by the way. I just told them I was a business guy. I didn't want to get into oh, that. Oh, really? <laughs> um, I was going to ask I was gonna ask if you if you ever gave any legal advice in prison. <laughs> but I never even I, – I had guys that when I got out who got out before me were angry at me. They said, I thought I was your friend and you never told me you were a lawyer. Like, <laughs> you know, no, I didn't. I became the managing editor of the San Quentin News. So if anybody is curious about the criminal justice system, I suggest they read sanquintinnews.com. Uh, they publish a monthly edition of 40 to 60 articles on what goes on inside a prison and a lot of the restorative justice and rehabilitation work that is done. Um, as well as the challenges that are faced by the incarcerated. And it's a great source of information uh, for the general populace that unfortunately only has orange is the new black or shot collar as an example of what goes on in prison. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Read the San Quentin News and you'll have a much better understanding. I was the managing editor of the San Quentin News. I came in as a reporter and then they asked me to be the managing editor. So I did that my last three years in prison. So I, I have a lot of pride in that. And even after I got home, I was the web manager. So I published the online version of the San Quentin News. Oh. So so that's something I would love people to look at. And I'll send you the link so you can add it to the, the profile. Yeah, please do. Uh, SanQuentinNews.com. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you, Wayne, so much. And to our listeners out there, we appreciate you listening to this episode. Uh, really appreciate all of our guests that come on. And uh, as we always say, you know, let's go ahead and build our creed together. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you. Thank you, guys.